trust in leadership is at an all-time low. This is true of the government. Recent Pew research shows that 65% of Americans say that most political candidates run for office mainly to serve personal interests. That number has been increasing over the years. And it's not just politics. Trust is at an all-time low in almost every institution in our country. Entertainment, education, healthcare. Think about how many people trust the CDC these days. And sadly, the church. When talking about leadership in the church, we must acknowledge that there have been and continue to be patterns of abuse in individual churches, sometimes whole denominations. And speaking to our church, uh, especially if you recently, within the last year or two, come to our church, I know there are some probably who carry with them wounds of experiences where power was abused. And this power that we experience being abused or misused comes not only from the church, we experience abuse of leadership or misuse of leadership and authority from the workplace, in our school experiences, in the family. Authority isn't always just abused, it's misused. And we see that sadly in the Western church a lot, where the rise of celebrity culture begins to replace biblical leadership culture that we get from scripture, where pastors are no longer shepherds, they're performers and success is measured by fame, not faithfulness. It's a sad reality where a pastor can be known nationally because of their platform for writing and speaking, but intimately unknown in his church that he leads. It's this abuse and misuse of authority that a lot of people want to respond by just rejecting all authority. Some people want to just then resist authority, or some just are inherently skeptical of all authority. But I think Scripture gives us a way forward that can redeem leadership, restore power to its rightful place, have a God-honoring view of authority, and put leadership in a position that honors Jesus and reflects Christ-like servanthood. I would say that for myself, in my role that I have, aside from carefully and faithfully delivering the Word of God, that stewarding leadership culture in our church is one of the most important roles I have. And so that's why most of my time outside of what I do from the Word and meeting with people, most of my time is considering how to create culture and invest in people who will be all kinds of leaders in our church and lead from a place that is from Scripture and emulates Jesus. Because you can trace almost every problem in the church, whether it's division, theological error, mission drift, major issues that come up, you can almost always trace it back to leadership and its culture and decision-making and how they lead. And even though today we're going to talk a lot about a particular role of leadership in the church, the elder, much of the principles that we are going to get into today apply and are true to all leaders. In fact, that's one of the amazing things about leadership we find in Scripture. Many of the things it talks about when it comes to the character of leaders and the, even the tasks of leaders, they're, they're somewhat universal. So one of the scholars who used to say, I remember this, a professor I had, he would always say one of the things about leadership in the scriptures that's amazing and notable is how unnotable it is. It seems so normal. 
Because one of the things that scripture reminds us again and again is fundamental things about leadership as we'll find. And so, yes, we'll talk primarily about the role of elders here and what Peter's talking about, but there are many principles, applications to all of us in the various spheres of leadership we have, because all of us exercise some kind of authority, some use of power in our life, in the home, in the workplace, in our schools. Even if you're just a young person in, in school, I think about my daughter who's nine years old and she's about to enter the fourth grade. Even though she has limited power, authority, and leadership, she's beginning to exercise some of that in the places she has. Even as she goes to summer camp, as she's interacting with other people, as she interacts with her sister at home and how she unintentionally leads her, sometimes very astray, right? So she has leadership scope. We all have that in our lives. I want to look at this passage, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, and ha- have it begin to seep into the the life of our leadership culture in our church. In fact, this is the passage I read last week when we were praying over and affirming our two lay elders. It would have been perfect just to preach this passage last week, just timing didn't work out, but we get to look at it today and look at how we can lead in a Christ-like way. The first thing I want to say about biblical leadership here, and we should say this from the outset and continue to say it throughout, is that Jesus is the chief shepherd. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want to start and kind of say this repeatedly throughout this message that we must begin a talk on leadership and continue to talk about all leadership from this fundamental belief that Jesus is the one who's ultimately leading. He is the chief shepherd. In our language, he would be the lead pastor. This means even though I do have a role in this church, I do not have ultimate authority. This church does not belong to me. It does not belong to any of our elders and pastors. It ultimately doesn't even belong to the members of our church. Uh, It belongs to Jesus because he's the one who died for it. He's the one who redeemed it. He's the one who says, I am building Not just the church generally. He's saying, my church. I'm building it. It's his. He is the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father. Right now is reigning over the church. He is the one who is going to return for the church. He is the head of the body. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the great shepherd of the flock. Matthew 28, a very famous passage that many of us know if you've been in the church, that gives us the great commission. We, We tend to think primarily about what we are to do. We are to go make disciples, baptizing them. But it begins and it, it kind of ends actually all about Jesus, that he is his, at the end. I love that. He, he will be with us until the end. That this is not ultimately about us and what we can do because we, by our own, we can't do much. But it begins with Jesus saying, all authority on heaven, in heaven and in earth has been given to him. He has all authority. He is the one who is ultimately leading. And so every bit of authority that any leader has in a local church is a delegated one. And we have to keep that in mind. That ultimately Jesus is in charge. That Jesus is leading. In fact, that's the only reason the church exists till today. Think about 2,000 plus years since Jesus ascended to heaven. How could this raggedy group, how could the brokenness of people leading the church throughout different seasons. How would, why was this, why is this thing still around? 
because Jesus is leading the church. Under this great shepherd, we see that he gives a delegated position and authority to elders in the church. See, under the authority of Jesus, the church is led by qualified elders. Look at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. A couple things about elders that I would love to, for us to understand. And this is a remind, hopefully for all of us who are elders and pastors in the church, this is reminders for us. As the church, maybe you're new to our church, maybe you haven't dug into how we are organized. This is why it's important for us to revisit this topic because much of what we're talking about, this is how we lead. This is how we decide. This is how we move forward together. And this is important for us to understand so that we're on the same page. Also for the members of our church to hold the elders accountable to these biblical calls and characteristics of leadership. Notice it's plural. I exhort the elders, plural. It's a team. Even though, though we know a lot about Paul, and though, even though we know a lot about Peter, from their positions and their platforms that they have, they never led on their own. It was always in the context of a team. In fact, in the last few letters of Paul's writings, First and Second Timothy and Titus, one of the main reasons he's writing to Ephesus through Timothy as he's writing to Crete through Titus is because in these places, they need to establish elders. Because it's not just from one person. They cannot just rely on Paul alone. They cannot just rely on even just Timothy and Titus alone. They must establish local leaders, elders, a team. And it's plural. It's a team because we need diverse perspectives, generationally, different backgrounds. You need diverse gifts. This protects the church from any one leader. Is in the context of a team, there should be accountability. Even though I'm up front a lot, talking way too much often, I don't lead the church on my own. My word is not final. I have a shared responsibility from a team, which is why one of my main responsibilities I find and one of my great convictions of my priority of time is to begin to identify and invest in other people who will join this team to steward the church along with me, also protect the church from me. Among you. It says, among you. I exhort the elders among you. I love that. Not over you. It's from of the midst of being members. Elders of the church are first members of the church. That's why if you've joined our church, maybe you remember this, especially even if you joined recently, we have you go through a membership process and we go through a membership covenant, which is an expression of our commitment to one another. It doesn't cover everything in the Bible, because that would take a very long time to express everything. But one of the things that's very clear and we make very explicit is that it's two directional. The first part of it talks about elders and the second part talks about members. And that means the elders are only elders because they're also then members of the church. It means you can only lead well from among, not over. One of the books we go through in our elder training has a chapter on it and it expresses one of our values that we talk a lot about is that we have to smell like sheep. Elders should smell like sheep. Shepherds need to, if, would you hire a shepherd who didn't smell? If you were someone who was investing in you know, sheep herding, 
would you hire someone who never smelled, who is a shepherd? No, because they wouldn't be among the sheep. Sheep need someone who's there, who's around them, who can lead them, who can correct them, who can rally them. Think about literal shepherd, right? You think about Psalm 23, as we started our service with. They're, they're near the sheep. They're not off somewhere at a distance. They're touching them. They're speaking to them. He knows them by name. He lives among them. Shepherds smell like sheep. They're among them. They're held to the same standard of as members. First, because they're not just CEOs giving directions authoritatively. They're not above the people. They're with them. So as we, as elders and pastors, give a call to our church, we are also calling ourselves to that same thing. It says that elders are wit partakers of the wit and witness of the suffering of Jesus and partakers of glory. He grounds the role of the elder in the gospel, the, the life, the death, the resurrection, the glorification of Jesus. This reminds us, you cannot lead others to Jesus without regular ongoing experience of Jesus. He's a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory. I, I think Peter expresses both a past anchoring in the gospel, but also a present ongoing nearness to the, the Lord of the gospel, Jesus, and a constant hope in his return, the glory to be revealed. See, this is something that we, we as leaders need to continue to anchor ourselves in. This is something important for us as parents trying to lead children to know Jesus. You, we cannot just trust past decisions to trust in Jesus. We, we need to have ongoing, present experience with the living God. Experiences that wrestle with some of the pains, some of the laments, some of the difficulties, some of the doubts. But all of that together, ongoing, wrestling, partaking with Jesus right now. It's anchored in the gospel, it's ongoing trust and transformation that comes from the gospel. It's an ongoing hope in the future of Jesus in his return. Verses 2 to 3 describe some of the roles and responsibilities of these leaders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Shepherd. That's the first verb for these elders. Elders, pastors, are not CEOs making distant decisions. As much as we want to learn from business culture today, a lot of what shapes what it means to lead churches and help churches grow, it's overly steeped in language that I think unhelpfully detaches us from this fundamental task of smelling like sheep, being with the sheep. Now, it takes us away from people. Pastors and elders were meant to be more like spiritual fathers. The role of an office in the church is called elder. One of the things you, you'll find in the scriptures is that elder overseer is used synonymously. In, in the Greek, you'll find this word presbyteros, where the Presbyterians get their name. That, that word, elder overseer, is synonymous. One of the things actually you don't see in the scriptures is pastor being an office. You never see... Paul describe or Peter describe the office of a pastor. It's actually often a task or a gift 
that people have. But in our culture, we use pastor and elder somewhat synonymously. And so in our church, we actually use them that way as well because we see that in scripture. And so all of our pastors are elders in our church. The distinction we have in our church is that our pastors are the staff elders of our church who are freed in their vocation to give of their lives to this ministry. Our lay elders in our church do the same things as our pastors, but they're not in the same way freed. So they're lay elders joining our pastors in helping carry out the shepherding of our church. And so all of our pastors are elders in our church. We use those titles synonymously. Not all the elders are pastors though, because the pastors in our church are the ones who are freed in their time to give of their lives to the shepherding of our church. We see this shepherd task in, a, in the scriptures. And what it means is to help them grow, help them flourish. Shepherding means to lead them, to feed them, to protect them. You see that regularly throughout the, the role of David as a shepherd. You see this regularly in what Paul and Peter describe for the leaders of the local church. Part of this, when he says shepherd, he also then goes on to say exercising oversight. This means to, to lead from managing the affairs of the local church. Throughout the New Testament, you see six ways that elders shepherd and oversee. This doesn't describe, you'll see a slide here, all the things that elders and pastors do, but at least fundamentally in the scriptures, you see these six things. You see them teaching. And so all the elders of our church teach in various ways. They're not always going to be the ones to teach from this platform. Our pastors are the ones who are called from this platform. But they teach in small groups, they teach in classes, they teach in individuals, they lead people in, in various ways, teaching them the word of God, what it means to understand it, what it means to align life to it, what it means to apply it to lives. They also are committed to pray. And, and this is something individually, this is something formally, this is something that we do publicly from our gatherings. We, we, we want to be people who are committed to prayer. One of the things you find in the early church, Acts chapter 6, as they begin to wrestle with the organization and the growing needs of the local church is that there is a lot of needs for caring for widows, so much so that the elders were no longer able to prioritize the word and prayer. And so that's where the beginning origins of what you find for the structure of deacons comes from in Acts chapter 6. And they were committed to prayer. One of the reasons why we, we've had a lot of conversations and a lot of gap of time, we, we started this conversation with uh, our pastoral candidate, Abe, since February or March of this year. And we're still not even at a place to make a decision yet because much of this requires conversation that then leads us to prayer. And then we get together to pray. We, we spend time apart praying. And then when we get together again, what did God say to you? That how are we hearing from the Lord. We, we take our time to seek the Lord. And that's the process we're in right now. We're receiving feedback so that when we receive feedback, it informs some of the things we pray about and how we can take a step forward. We want to be committed to prayer. Leading, which is managing the affairs of the church, giving oversight to what is happening in our church, discipling, being involved in people's lives, helping them understand what it means to apply the, the gospel to their life, turning from sin, what it means to to apply that to all aspects, your work, your family, counseling, comforting, exhorting, correcting sometimes, and theological things or behavioral things. He goes on to say the responsibilities of the elders, and he describes it in a not but. So a negative and then a positive, three not buts. 
the first not but is not under compulsion, but willingly. This is very important. This is something I, I, I think is fundamental to all leadership in the local church, especially, but especially of elders. No elder should ever be forced or feel stuck. Elders should not feel the external, pastors too, should never feel external pressure to keep doing on this role. They, no one should ever feel like, well, if I don't do this, who's going to do this? That, that's a terrible way to move forward in this role. Imagine going to a, a person who is your physician, who's forced to be your phys physician. What kind of care are you going to get from that person? Who's going to someone who's forced to be your therapist? What kind of care are you going to receive from this person? How much worse is it to receive leadership and shepherding from someone in the church who's forced or feels stuck? Paul says the very first thing in 1 Timothy 3 describing the elders is they aspire, they desire this task. Now they have to want it from a good conscience, but it has to be something they want. One of the things that we're discussing right now as we made some changes to our church, we've always had terms for our decision makers in our organization. And so we have a board and we have terms there. We, we serve three-year terms that are renewable once. And then we ask that people would take some time off so that they would give not just rest to themselves, but openness for other people to join in that. So we have diversity in the decision-making that oversees our church. But one of the things we've actually never done in our church, and we're starting to have conversations that I really want this to happen, is what does that mean to shape our eldership? Because we never gave terms to our eldership. Regardless of terms, in fact, I, I think fundamentally, the main thing is we need to give elders freedom to step off this responsibility at different times. No one should ever feel stuck. Also, we need to have review for these elders because at different seasons, they may not be able to actually function as we need them to, but we haven't had a process to review, give them proper feedback, encouragement, also correction at times. No one should ever feel that stuckness. And so as an elder team, we're discussing what it means to have review for us so that we continue on healthily, that we are asking tough questions about our aspirations because our aspirations do change at times. We've had elders in our church who aspired at one season and they served faithfully and it didn't continue on forever. And that's okay. We, we honor that aspirational change as God leads us in different seasons. And we don't want them to feel like, well, I just have to be there or have someone just hold a title just because they were appointed and they're not functioning healthily anymore. We don't want pastors to feel that way either. In fact, that's one of the things I really felt like it was very honorable about Pastor Aram as he was wrestling about his own call. As he's still called to serve the Lord, he realized some of his call was changing his way that he was going to serve in the body of Christ and he no longer felt the same aspiration to the position of pastor. And he was willing to follow God in the shift of that in his life. Because if he just stayed for it because of a job or just stayed for it because of need, he would no longer be functioning in a way that honors himself and the Lord, but also would no longer serve our church. Because if he just held that position, just because he felt like he was stuck or just because he needed a job, it would not free us to find the next person that God would be calling to our church. We don't want our elders or pastors just to do it because they felt like they had to or they felt like they were stuck. There's no tenure to eldership. It's, it must be a regularly, presently committed thing. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That's the second not but. Not shameful gain, but eagerly. No elders, no church leaders 
should ever go into ministry for personal gain. Now, this certainly condemns the extravagance of prosperity preachers. It also should stop us, and I've kind of already said this, but it's worth unpacking some more. It it should stop pastors and elders who just want a, a, a role or just want a title. Like if a pastor feels like they need to do it just because they don't, they need a job to sustain their life, I would say that's also not eagerly. And it may not be the same category of shameful gain as a prosperity preacher, but they're no longer eagerly serving and they're no longer then serving the Lord in the ways that they should and no longer then blessing the church because then they just want a job because that's what they feel like they need to survive in their life. That's a bad place to be as a pastor. This not shameful gain, but eagerly, it, it it kind of confronts all the other kinds of gains that we need to be cautious of. Wanting positions for respect of man, wanting connections, having some kind of personal agenda. I mean, this gaining approval of man. I mean, no, no one in a position of elder or pastor would ever say they're in it because they want approval of man. I mean, if you ask anyone, right, they're never going to say, well, I want this because of approval of man. How do you know then? And this is something that must be very carefully reviewed interpersonally inside the individual among the team as we wrestle with someone there's a danger to fame there's nothing wrong with being a leader with broader influence you see that in the early church Peter and Paul had more significant influence you remember one of the apostles who was appointed after do you know the name of the person who was appointed after Judas so Judas died right and then the, the Holy Spirit needed to help them choose a replacement. You remember the name of that person? I bet you 90% of the church doesn't know who that name is because we don't know that person, Matthias, because we don't hear anything about him afterwards. But he led faithfully in the church. Hopefully, we don't know anything about him. But then you know a lot about Paul. You know a ton about Peter. There's nothing wrong with having influence in a broader platform. You see that through church history. Martin Luther... John Calvin, you see all these people, the Wesley brothers, more recently, Tim Keller is going to have a long-lasting influence and impact. But there's a difference between being well-known and having broad influence and feeding off celebrity. The difference is how we think about power and influence. Do you want to know if someone is doing the role of elder or pastor or using their leadership for power and influence and, and, and wants to do it for fame, look at what they are most concerned about. Look at what they measure. Look at what they get most excited about. Look at what makes them sad. In a celebrity culture that is about followers and fame and money and gaining clout, what happens to someone when they lose those things? What happens to someone who wants that and that's the main thing of their life? It begins to shape what they spend their time on, what they're interested in, what they celebrate. The word eagerly there, that's such an important word. You know, one of the ways that you can tell if you're in a leadership position wrongly is if you only want to do it when things go your way. Because in leadership, most of the time, especially the first time, things will not go your way. If you ever try to lead anything, you know that experience. And if you only want to continue to lead and you only feel like you're leading well when things go your way, maybe that isn't quite 
maybe there's some maturity there, but maybe there's also a wrestling with shameful game. If you only want to lead when people do exactly what you want, there may be some shameful game there. Not domineering. That's the third not but. Not domineering, but being examples. Authority is not given to control people. Jesus doesn't give us power and authority in the local church. You don't have authority in your home. You don't ultimately even have authority in your vocations, which God graciously gave to you, so that you can control, but serve. Being examples. It's sad, but too many examples of well-known leaders now today, not just failing because of sexual or financial sins, you see failure of among leaders who are domineering. Sometimes we'll call this spiritual abuse. Speaking overly harshly or manipulating people because of their position. A domineering leader says, follow me, even if their life isn't worthy of imitation. But one of the things fundamental to being a leader in the local church is that your life is worthy of imitation. But sometimes I think we get stuck, and I'm going to use this analogy because it helps me kind of clarify in my own heart uh, what I don't want to be, is that I, I think there's a temptation to be, uh, instead of examples, we become travel agent leaders. You know what a travel agent does? There's someone who is an in-between to explain and help you get to your destination. They know a lot about the destination. They know how to get there. They may be able to help you plan your vacation, your holiday. But maybe they've never actually gone there. Or maybe they rarely go there. And so they're trying to help you go somewhere where they rarely go. And sadly, sometimes I think we become those kinds of leaders in our lives where we're telling people what to do in their lives. We're telling what they need to, to commit to, what they need to change in their life. But we aren't actually doing that ourselves. Where sadly, sometimes we can call the church to be generous, but I haven't given. Or you, 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 you call the church to be more evangelistic where I just want to go home and binge Netflix. It's easy to tell people what to do without having a life worthy of imitation. But that's why when Paul, it, it seems prideful at first, but it's actually very hard to follow what Paul says, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. You know what that's an invitation to? Inspect my life. See if I'm actually following Jesus. And as a, you see things in my life that are follow, emulating Jesus, you should also do the same. Not domineering, but being examples. We need to teach, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. I already said, he says, imitate me as I'm imitating Jesus. I'm so thankful for the various examples I've had of that in my own life. I've been able to see leaders who prioritize what it means to be men of character. Not just people who are trying to perform from a particular platform. Being examples. It's an emphasis on character. Because fundamental to leadership in the church is character. First Peter talks a lot about the task of leadership. First Timothy chapter 3 primarily talks about the character of leaders. It's very possible today, especially, to have someone in a position of leadership with a lot of power and very low character. And every time you have that, it always leads to oppression and destruction. 
authority, good authority, is always coupled with godly character. Scriptures emphasize this again and again and again because we as people choose leaders with our own eyes. We choose to become leaders by our desire for ease because performing externally is a whole lot easier than developing character. See, one of the dangerous things we find in the church, not just in the church, we see this everywhere in leadership, but sadly in the church this should not be because we have so many reminders of this, is that you can confuse gifting with character. This happens all the time. We confuse gifting with character. And so oftentimes in the church, we find someone who's maybe young, gifted, charismatic, can communicate so amazingly, can rally a crowd, can gather thousands of people, do something very well, and we assume that because they're very gifted, that their character matches their gifting. And it often doesn't always automatically mean that. We must prioritize character more than gifting. Fundamental to leadership for followers of Jesus is this truth. This is not just true of elders. This is true of all areas of leadership in our life. Fundamental to our leading must be coupled character. In fact, you can only be given more responsibility and more authority if your character matches. And it's often when we give someone more position, more authority, more opportunity without equally matching character that things go awry. In fact, that's what you see in the early very beginning of selecting a leader for the people of God. How did they select their first king? With their eyes. And one of the judgments that we receive when we select leaders with our own eyes is the poor leadership that comes from our selection. And we do this again and again and again, don't we? And so it's worth repeating again and again and again. Leadership must be coupled with godly character. That's why we spend a lot of time with anyone who wants to be in a position of leadership in our church, wrestling with character, seeing how they're involved, asking their family questions. That's why we do all of that with the elder process. It's a lot harder, actually, with a pastoral process when we don't know the person, right? It's actually very hard. If you're looking for a pastor and you've never actually been in the community in life with them and you're trying to discern if this person should be here, it's actually quite hard. It's actually an act of faith. This is why I shared, and I'm going to say this again, it's important for us to understand as a church, as we're praying about leaders and drawing staff and especially pastors to our church, I want to move very carefully because character matters the most. And, and it's very hard to find someone who you get a chance to know their character from the outside. In fact, that's why right now in our season of change, I wasn't really even prioritizing looking for another pastor yet because I wanted to settle some of this as we're moving forward. But when Abe, when we were wrestling with this process with Abe, it's like one of the things we were wrestling with as pastors and elders in our conversation is we actually know this person's character, well, at least from the past, right? We've seen what this person's like. He's been a lay elder in our church, but we also don't want to just trust the past. One of the reasons we're taking our time and prayerfully engaging this, is we're asking, even though we know his past character, for references right now. Who, who's been in, in the trenches with him who can validate his character now because we aren't actually working with him on a daily basis anymore we don't just want to trust the past character we want to know the character now character matters fundamentally we conclude with this some of these ideas that maybe kind of bridge all this together for us 
All right, we talk about leadership. We see some of the roles of the elders. We see some of the characteristics, their tasks. I hope that that gives us principle for all leadership areas of our church. But one of the things we have to end on is that this takes a lot of grace and humility. And because, because so many of us have experienced authority and leadership abuse and misuse, I know as I'm even giving this message, there's a limitation to my words. Because it may even seem self-serving for me to say that you should follow your leaders and respect your leaders and you know understand leadership when I'm actually someone who is an elder in our church. Right? There, there are many people in our church who've been hurt by authority, who are skeptical of authority, who, who are distrusting of institutions and leaders, who carry wounds. And so I know that me saying this may be perceived as self-serving. And I think this is why Peter anticipates this and ends in verse 5 with humility. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject. And that's really hard, isn't it? Uh, that word, it sometimes is translated submit. We, we, that's a four-letter word in our culture. Submit to the elders. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, those who are elders, those who are younger, with humility towards one another. He understood that the only way this works is humility. And Peter understands humility. He was someone who betrayed Jesus, who was disqualified, but Jesus requalified him in feeding the sheep. Humility is recognizing that we are only who we are because of Jesus. Humility is being able to admit when we're wrong, to serve, not demand. You know, at some point, if you stay long enough in our church, you stay enough, long enough in any church, you will probably need to practice patience and forgiveness with someone, and even leaders. Me as a pastor, we as the pastors and elders in our church, we will fail you. We will. Whereas there will be times where I will need to sit down and apologize. I have failed my other elders where I need to sit down with them and sit down and say, I'm sorry that I, I spoke harshly towards you. We, we will work hard to make sure that this is less common and more rare, but this is bound to happen because we are still broken people being sanctified. We are still sheep that need our great shepherd, even though we're shepherds. And one of the things I want us to focus on in our hearts is that if this takes humility, we ultimately need to regularly come back to the gospel. Only the good news of Jesus can cultivate a culture where power, authority, and leadership can be used differently. Because the gospel can break patterns of abuse. The gospel can create patterns of grace. Remember in Matthew chapter 20, near the end of Jesus' ministry and this is Jesus actually explaining multiple times that he's going to die and rise again and you know, he's going to go through tough times. And James and John, as they've been following Jesus for you know, almost three years at this point, they want leadership positions. They want authority. They've been following Jesus and they think they're ready for the big time. And so they do what every strong leader does when they want positions of power. They go ask their mom to help them. Remember that? <laughs> they're like, we want to be at the right and left of Jesus. And so they're like, what's our strategy? Go ask mom to help us out. And so they ask their mom to help them. And James and John, they, they, they have their mom talk to Jesus on their behalf. And, you know, all their disciples, they get angry. They're not righteously angry. They're like, why didn't we think of that? We should ask their moms too. 
No, they want the position themselves. They're like, well, Jesus is going to usher in a new kingdom. We deserve, we've been following Jesus. We need to be in positions of power. This is what Jesus says to them. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus actually never rebukes them for desiring leadership and greatness. It's interesting, isn't it? But he redefines it. He redeems it. He doesn't remove authority. He doesn't remove leadership or the desire for it, actually. But he says, the reason you're going to have this and the reason you should want this is to serve, not self-serve. It's a reversal of our culture's view of authority. Jesus went to the cross, the one who has all authority, the one who made everything from his word, the one who can make everything from nothing, who came through a virgin amazingly, miraculously, who lived a perfect sinless life. This chief shepherd reverses everything by becoming a sacrificial lamb to help us deal with our sin. The cross shows us this great reversal of power and authority. Jesus didn't cling to power, right? He had all the power, but he gave it away for others. He used his power for love. All of his strength was showed ultimately in weakness to human eyes. He used all of his might to express mercy. Authority and power are part of the Christian faith. In fact, if you call Jesus Lord, it actually is a power dynamic there. You are submitting to him. In fact, this is why I think there's some hijacking of our Christian faith. We don't realize there is a power dynamic there. We think so calling Jesus as Lord, just adding him to our you know, pantheon of little things that we can add, like an insurance policy to our life. No, to say he's Lord means I'm no longer in charge. I no longer have authority. Jesus does. His way, not mine. His kingdom, not my kingdom. His glory, not mine. Through the gospel, we can see that authority is used not to get our way, but to serve others in ultimately God's way. Church, you have various roles of authority and leadership. I pray that as we continue to grow as a church, that we see power, authority, and leadership as something through the lens of the gospel where we have a Lord who came not to be served but to serve imagine the kind of church we would be if that continues to be not just for the few but that was the marker of all of us as we led in our city in our homes in our church to his glory to his name let's pray God give us eyes to see your leadership, your shepherding through sacrifice, through mercy. May that change us. May it transform us. May it transform our city. May it give shape to our church. May it make our families a place where the next generation sees leadership differently. 
we see in all places as we get a chance to reflect the gospel even in how we lead. In Jesus' name, amen.